Welcome to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations. My name is Ivan Vevoda. I head the Europe's Futures Fellowship Program here at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, a project generously funded by the Erste Foundation in Austria. It is with particular pleasure that I host a colleague and, and friend in these Vienna Coffee House Conversations. Judy is a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe. She is the editor-in-chief of the Strategic Europe blog and is previously in her life a senior foreign policy correspondent for the Irish Times, for the Financial Times, for the International Herald Tribune, and she speaks to us from Vienna today. We will talk, obviously, about Europe, about democracy. I'd, I'd like to start with a general uh, question, Judy, because this really is about the issue of the regression of democracy that we have been witnessing. You have written about it. I'll mention some of your pieces. But why don't we start with a general and, and broad question? In your view, what is happening to democracy? Why now in this past decade? And not only, obviously, in Europe with the examples that are always mentioned of Poland and, and Hungary, but further afield in India or Turkey or Brazil or the West writ large, uh, what we saw in America was a form of that regression. Thank you, Ivan, and thank you for inviting me and greetings from Berlin. Uh, these are very complicated questions, I and mean, I'll try to answer the issue of democracy, what's gone wrong, more or less, as succinctly as I can. I think there's a, um, one main point. When we talk about India, when we talk about Central Europe, let's leave out Western Europe and the United States for the moment. Democracies are very young. Uh, the young in Asia, the young in India, the young in Latin America, and they're extremely young and brittle in Central Europe. Uh, this is the first point. Precisely because they're young, they take time to institutionalize. And for democracies to gain depth and gain traction, you need strong economies, but you need a, a strong middle class, kind of liberal bourgeoisie, and not the kind that we saw in the interwar years in Central Europe. You need one with a stake in the society. Democracies because of these last two components, they've become fragile or susceptible to populism because I think that the speed of globalization has left some behind and many have profited. But the inequalities, the social inequalities and the economic inequalities are widening. And we've seen these statistics in the United States, how a tiny percentage actually own most of the wealth in the United States. This does create a, a great deal of bitterness and the feeling of being left behind. And precisely because of these reasons, one needs a communication strategy from the democracies, from the governments, from the elites, from the media, a communication strategy to explain the merits of democracies, but also the weaknesses of democracies and how they can be strengthened. So I think all these elements, which are very complicated, some are complementary, but they, they are all set out there and they do raise lots of questions about how democracies can be reorganized. Let's go to Europe more specifically. You have recently written a piece that was entitled along some of the things that you've been saying right now, Europe's weak defense of its democracy. How specifically does this appear 
in the European context. I mean, we've also, when this problem is mentioned, often mentioned Italy under Berlusconi, for example, that some of the countries that are candidates are put under very strict rules of accepting all the acquis communautaire and that some countries in Europe today wouldn't meet the standard. Why is it that we've been seeing this erosion happen, even in some modalities of what we call the stronger democracies? One element is uh, the control of the media and sufficient proper ownership rules uh, in the old democracies, in the new democracies, but generally throughout Europe. And the media plays an enormous uh, influence, an enormous degree of power. Very rich people own the media. Some try to have a hands-off. Others, whether it's friends of the government, of the governing elites, they use the media uh, to promote, whether it's populist or demagogic, or, or just generally even democratic views. But the point is the media should be there to allow a platform of views and of analysis. I'm not going to say objectivity because this is such a loaded word, but the media should provide a, a, a ground for competition of ideas. So I think this is one of the big uh, drawbacks of the media across Europe. And so the second point is that when investigative journalists do try to uh, look at corruption or look at the erosion of the rule of law, especially in the Western Balkans, especially in Poland and Hungary. Either they are intimidated or indeed in the case of Poland and, and in Hungary, the governments try to gain control of the media by buying the shares or else closing them down or when it comes to the frequencies of radios, closing down the frequency. So the media plays a hugely important role. And I think, Ivan, there's another issue and it's this feeling of, of the club. Uh, once you're in this EU club, the idea of accountability and of encouraging the member states to adhere to the rule of law, to the special Copenhagen criteria that was set out several years ago, that actually set out the, the parameters for joining the European Union, the parameters that were based on values, on democracy, on freedom of the press. Generally, um, in many cases, they've been broken, but precisely because they're in the club, the club tends to protect them. And the final point is the structure of, of the democratic processes themselves. I'm particularly thinking of the European Parliament. For instance, the European People's Party, which is the umbrella for the Conservative parties throughout um, the EU member states, it has generally turned a blind eye to uh, those members that are a member of the EPP, but actually flout the law. So it's a kind of turning a blind eye or just not wanting to upset the, the, the court because the voting rights would be disturbed. Essentially, we are our own worst enemy when it comes to speaking about democracy and when it comes to defending democracy. These are extremely important points that you make about the state of, of democracy. And since we're focusing on Europe, I'd like to try and put uh, two things together. This European Commission that came in and that's being led now by Ursula von der Leyen declared itself as, as a geopolitical commission, trying to make amends for some of the faults and weaknesses that appeared under the previous one in a world that is more and more a, a G2 world where the United States and, and China seem to be taking the upper hand and, and where Europe is uh, struggling to one, keep its model of society and, and rule of law, as you mentioned. And on the other hand, trying to find a stronger positioning on strategic issues so it's not left out 
of some grand deals that are happening for better or for worse. How, how do these two things mesh in your view, this tendency or attempt or desire of Europe to be more geopolitical and at the same time try to uphold the, the democratic value uh, you, you wrote recently on, for example, the elections in Bulgaria, where we see that there have been problems. Another member state that doesn't seem to be fully complying with uh, the rules of, of democracy and anti-corruption. You don't square them, actually. There's a very interesting triangle which you've implied. You've got the values, you've got the interests, and you've got the strategy. And how you're actually, I wouldn't dare say square the circle, but if you're going to have a, an equal triangle, it's just not going to work. Firstly, let's take strategy. The European Union under Ursula von der Leyen has made a geopolitical um, goal, the idea of the European Commission. Well, it would be very interesting if the Commission spelt out, first of all, what is the strategic goal? And secondly, the Commission has to recognise the fact that the 27 member states have completely different attitudes about strategy. Some have long-term strategy, some have no strategy, some have short-term strategy. This is the first thing. Linked to strategy is the whole idea of threats. And there isn't a common threat perception among the 27 member states. Very briefly, the, the northern tier of the European Union believe that Russia is the threat and indeed the, what's going to happen in the Arctic. The South believe that uh, refugee, immigration and of course the Middle East is the main threat, not Russia. And France, no longer Britain, France believes Islamic terrorism is the threat and, um, and Germany straddles all sorts of things. So essentially, we have a big problem in talking about a geostrategic element of the European Commission precisely because there isn't a common strategy and we will not get a common strategy until we have a common threat perception. Then we come to the other point of the triangle and you cannot separate interests from values. However much you want to, it's not going to work because the European Union was built on an architecture of values. Of course, there was interest in terms of economy, in terms of peace, in terms of cooperation, in terms of competition, in terms of trade and so on. Values is the core element of this Europe. And this is still relatively young, by the way, uh, uh, Ivan, since the early 50s. Values is a notion and a philosophy that cannot be endured if you don't feed it and if you don't work in it. So dealing with these values means always questioning them and always trying to convey what they mean in terms of individualism, in terms of human rights, in terms of uh, humanistic values. But then you run into the big problem of what you do with interests. And how do you reconcile interests, borders, dealing with authoritarian regimes, reaching out to other economies, which you know the leaders aren't at all democratic. And how do you reconcile trade deals with values when perhaps a country you're dealing with, like China or some countries in Latin America or other countries where, in fact, the values carry very little meaning? So these three elements of the triangle don't mesh and they are not going to mesh for some time until you have a leadership both in the European Parliament and the Member States and the Commission who recognise that they have to defend values, but they have to be very outspoken to be able to marry values with interests, and it is possible. There's much talk about this big European conference on the future of Europe, 
There's a commissioner for the uh, European way of life, I believe is, is the title, but you'll correct me. And there's criticism coming from, let's say, progressive circles that this is a bit of a, a siege mentality that Europe has to open up to the world. You mentioned an, a number of problems, whether it's Africa, the demographics of the world, the, the migration issues. How would you re react? How would you analyze these, these criticisms? Do they have merit? Is Europe right to kind of try and close itself in and uh, uh, say that this, this is the model that the rest of the world really should uphold. Many people want to come here. It's obviously something that's extremely attractive. People are not migrating to, to Russia or to China or, or to Latin America. In fact, Latin Americans are, are fleeing uh, in droves uh, to, towards the United States. There, there seems to be a, a lot of talk in, in this direction and yet, of course, if we do not defend the rule of law, if other great powers try to impose their views, then we are certainly in a problem in trying to uphold what has been won with great difficulty through the 19th and 20th century in, in terms of a, a, a liberal order that defends human rights. Let me take up the last point, Ivan, uh, the, the 19th and 20th century. Liberalism is very young, and it wasn't a European phenomenon. It was confined to certain elites and to certain cultures, particularly in Western Europe. And the liberalism in Eastern Europe, the very word itself, it wasn't quite anathema, but it was extremely weak. So to talk about liberalism, and my very first point in this conversation, democracy, we have to be very careful that the traditions and the political cultures of all the member states are different. If you keep this in mind, and then you impose a kind of chapeau, uh, an umbrella or a hat over this and say, we need a European way of life. You have to be extremely careful in imposing this European way of life. If you go down this road of imposing, we might as well be kind of replicating, not an authoritarian uh, regime, but a kind of authoritarian must that you have to do. This language of a European way of life and this commission to set up a, a European way of life, I think the, the wording is provocative. I don't think it's helpful. And I think it's exclusive. We don't need to sell a European way of life. We have the values already and we don't have to push this kind of way of life onto others. They are there in terms of our values, no death penalty, no torture, a free media, civil and human rights, and they're enshrined in the UN codes and charters and our own human rights charter, and we don't have to put them into concrete. If you do this, you create a kind of stasis in society, because ways of life continually change, whether it's regard to how you deal with children, or marriage, or same-sex couples, or other issues. Societies are constantly in flux, and one society will move quicker than another, and we have to take this into account. And I think that's one of the attractions of Europe. But if you say you come to Europe and signing up to this way of life, it becomes a kind of dogma, which I actually think contradicts the idea of the values. On the second point, which you bring up, the convention, frankly, this convention is going to go nowhere. 
if we don't actually revise and have a serious uh, discussion about democracy and the functioning of democracy, but particularly the relationship between the, the horizontal, the vertical ground, the middle ground and the elites. Uh, the communication is so weak between all the various levels of society. I uh, agree that uh, this is a, a complicated issue and I think that some of the narrative used has been confusing to those looking from outside of Europe, to put it mildly. And I think there needs to be a rectification in that way. Let me go on to another issue I think that we both share, and that is the voice from below, the civic voice of, of civil society people. There's been a lot of criticism, obviously, that the representative democracy that we have, uh, free elections, uh, political parties, a free press, is in fact an oligarchic democracy, that it's there to defend the few as opposed to, to the many who are out there. And we've seen uh, massive uh, street protests, whether it's the Gilets Jaunes or the Indignados in Spain or Occupy Wall Street or simply a, a voice bursting out from below, to put it again all too simply, that says, well, basically, uh, we don't have a voice or we don't feel we have a voice and that the effort needs to be done to actually give voice to the people so that it's not only an oligarchic democracy where basically one has the right to consume ad infinitum and that in fact democracy has been boiled down to a sort of governance, that it's been emptied out of its emancipatory potential. Uh, how do you see the way of giving a voice from those from below, those who mm. are sending us a cri de coeur, yeah. as, the, as the French would say. I think this is such an important question. Can I just raise Poland, actually? I find Poland very, very interesting. And I don't want to get onto this bandwagon of, of simply criticising the governing law and justice. If it's possible at all to leave aside how law and justice does see the rule of law and the application of justice, Law and justice at the moment is still very popular because of its social component. Liberal elites mock this. Its social component is actually helping those who never got on the ladder of globalization, those who don't emigrate, those who didn't get into the gig economy, those who didn't find work in other European member states. Essentially, these are the small people, especially living in eastern Poland, the region has been neglected. It's, it's rather poor. Uh, it's under the influence of the Catholic Church. But this is no reason to mock these people, nor is there a reason to mock law and justice in giving um, women 500 swatties, whatever that is, 120 euros extra a month to have an extra child. To mock this is precisely to feed uh, the populace. And the point is that these people have been marginalised and they were neglected by the previous government. So you have to have a, a politics that is inclusive, not a politics that denigrates and looks down on others. This is the first point. I think this is very, very important. And when we talk about civil society and coming up from the bottom, civil society has to take into account the less well-off those who aren't, haven't the ability for social mobility. We have to think out of our own boxes about what civil society means. Because actually, Ivan, in some ways, civil society is rather a privileged, elitist element as well. 
So just to say, oh, well, we need a civil society or non-governmental organization to look into this or set up this independent media. Is that civil in the real sense of citizenship? For me, civil means civil, the citoyen, reaching out as far as possible and explaining, not patronizing, but listening and having a dialogue. That's just the first point. I used to believe in it, but I'm not so sure anymore. Yes, I like this fancy word of uh, town hall meetings, but we know who's going to go to town hall meetings. Um, you know, those converted to civil society will. But if you want a town hall meeting, go to villages, go to rundown schools, go to old hay barns, street markets in poor towns and villages throughout the Western Balkans or in Eastern Hungary or in Poland, or for heaven's sake in Northern England, where it's very, very poor. And civil society does have some of the answers, but civil society has to move away from us and them. Civil society is sometimes portrayed as the ground versus the elites. We've got to spread it out and refigure the democratic practices. It's not easy, but it demands an enormous commitment of elected parliamentarians on the local level, in local councils, and on the national level. It's a lot of hard work. Absolutely. I mean, lots of issues that, that you've raised there. It, it was, among many others, Hannah Arendt that raised the, uh, the question, or rather put forward the, the statement that the French Revolution really was about the social question. It was about bread, you know, to, to put it all too simply. And from your earlier uh, answers, talking about inequality, and those who have suffered from globalization. And of course, now with the pandemic, there's a lot of talk about reshoring and not offshoring, bringing back production, et cetera, a whole host of issues that, that we can't tackle right here. But it was Machiavelli that talked about, you know, the importance of what he called the vivere civile and the vivere libera. A civil life was a free life. And I, I completely take your point about some of the meanderings of civil society and the way that there's been basically a, a taking away of that term uh, that's become a professionalized area of life that really hasn't touched upon some of the key issues. And also the very important point that you make about the social component, trying to answer some of these questions. I mean, many among other Dostoevsky have said, people will forget freedom for bread. I mean, that's obvious if you're hungry, that's the most important thing. And some of these populist leaders, and not only populists, have found ways to satisfy that, that social need, those who have been left behind, by doling out uh, a variety of, of benefits, which you say we must not denigrate, because people have to live and uh, they have to uh, have a semblance of, of a decent life. And so this issue of democracy and the loss of its emancipatory potential in Western societies, let's say, I think is, is something that's actually uh, driving uh, a, a lot of the, the protests uh, that we've seen that many then tax as saying, well, nothing happens. For example, in Bulgaria, after people have been in the streets for four months or, or so, what's happened? I don't think so. I, I would call these bricks in the wall that may only give their result, you know, in a few years or maybe in 10 years, but there's been a learning process, a, a political and civic learning process, which people don't forget. Some will fall off the, the protest movement, others will join, younger people are coming, but it speaks, I think, and this is what I, I want you to, to speak 
on. It's this, this need to understand that the democracy is reinvented every day. And uh, I think we spoke, we spoke earlier about this tradition of the Enlightenment. I don't know what you feel. I, I feel we still live in the aura of, of the Enlightenment. Many people say we've moved on, but I think the questions that were posed by those people from the Enlightenment, whether they were Scots or French or, Brit or English, or Germans, I think are very much the questions that we live in, even in this technologically changed world. So some thoughts of you on that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Enlightenment, which is um, um, very close to my heart. Even before the Enlightenment, if you looked at Florence under the Medici and the whole system of patronage and clientelism, there was this... And that's why I mentioned yeah, that. It was so, it's so interesting how the cities of Lucca and, and Medici were organised along patronage lines, clientelism, but it was a very special kind of feudalism based on contract. And this feudalism never took root in Eastern Europe for very different reasons. But the Enlightenment was about demystifying a certain system based on either empire or tyranny or the lack of rule of law. And the Enlightenment was based on the idea of the individual, of humanistic values, and of a very kind of special freedom, of the divisibility of state and society. And I think this is so strong still. And the, it's particularly strong in Belarus where they are actually embracing the Enlightenment every single day in terms of the freedom, in terms of the, the necessity to demonstrate peacefully, not that Danton and his friends did this sometimes, but to, to demonstrate for something that is universal. And one thing, uh, I, I find the Enlightenment particularly interesting because the Enlightenment of course, with John Locke and it was Voltaire and Machiavelli and in France. But those who challenge democracy accuse the Enlightenment of being a, a European Western phenomenon. The Enlightenment embodies human universal values and rights. And if it didn't, the people in Myanmar and the people in Belarus would not be protesting for these particular values. Enlightenment was the embodiment of these values. And the interesting thing, and you get a little bit, I suppose, in Aristotle, that this is the big philosophical dispute that goes back so many centuries between the government, the governed and the citizens, between who governs and who's the citizen, the relationship between the power. And the Enlightenment actually expressed this so clearly and this is what we're seeing now in Belarus and Myanmar. I completely agree with you on that Judy. We're slowly coming to, to a close. I'd like to end just on on something that I've witnessed all along. I've as you know lived in, in Washington for six years from 2010 onwards and as, as the economic crisis unfolded and as the migration crisis, there was constant talk about the European Union falling apart. You know, the Krugmans of this world were talking about the euro being the, the worst possible thing that it will disappear. And yet somehow it, it's all here. And I think we who live in Europe and understand the European Union didn't really appreciate this doomsday talk not that the challenges weren't humongous, that sure. Just yesterday or the day before, your, your colleague journalist 
Gideon Rachman had this op-ed in the Financial Times under the title, The EU's Stability Will Again Confound Its Critics. And he admits that he was one of those people who actually talked about the demise of or, or the weakening of Europe. And he ends on, on this thought, and I'd like as a final question to you to, to comment on it and say how you see these things. He says, concluding this op-ed, in reality, the EU is a careful and evolving balance between national and supranational power and between technocracy and democracy. That is the source of stability and strength not of weakness or frailty. So do you, do you, I mean, first of all, do you see the EU surviving as I believe it will, even with all the challenges? Yes, it's, it's slow. Yes, it's done a mess of the vaccine rollout. You know, the way that it's behaving in a number of cases doesn't liken it to a geopolitical power. And yet, uh, finally, we see the strong support of public opinions for the European Union in every country. I'm very pleased that Gideon Rackman wrote this because he's, he's a bit of a Eurosceptic and when he was a correspondent in Brussels for The Economist, heavens, Indeed. he was very Eurosceptic. So uh, Gideon has done his own philosophical conversion, so to speak. First of all, I believe the European Union will continue to exist, but that's... That's a rather glib answer. What does continue to exist mean? Giddy mentioned the relationship between technology and democracy and stability, but it's got to push itself forward. And it's all very, it's so easy to be cynical about the European Union, but it has to move forward and this will mean more integration. And surely the pandemic has taught the European leaders on the member state level and on the leadership level in Brussels, the need for more integration. This does not mean leaving uh, those countries that are not members of the euro behind. It means and this goes back to our convention. It means really discussing the direction of Europe. It's not a question of what kind of Europe we want. We know what Europe we have. It's a question of renewing the scaffolding, making the fundaments much, much stronger. And I think this requires a more integrated Europe, political and economically. This is the first thing. And secondly, I've been rereading East Central Europe Between Two World Wars by Joseph Rothschild. And when you read this, you realize how far we've come. Extraordinarily how far we've come. Sometimes I do feel depressed about the situation and the, the bureaucracy and the, the backwardness and the heavy hand of digitization and the, the bickering and so on. Well, that's the everyday element of, of progress, of modernization and of politics. But it's going to need a political will in the big member states, but also the small ones on pushing Europe forward together. Given what's happening in China, given what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Ukraine and the Middle East, Europe needs a voice and it's got to be a voice that's much more together. And I really hope the pandemic will bring this Europe towards a much more integrated development. Thank you very much, Judy. I fully agree that it, it requires all hands on deck including those of us who are here in this podcast. It can't be left to, to the leaders because that's dangerous. And the voice of the people, to put it grandly, is extremely important. I do hope that we will have the chance to meet in a real Vienna coffee house. Uh, we've had our coffees respectively in Berlin and, and Vienna. And so I'd like to close this by uh, saying that we will follow on with a new podcast. But Judy, it was really great to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ivan, for having me. Keep well and safe. Bye-bye. 
That was Ivan Vejvoda in conversation with Judy Dempsey. In the next Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, Ivan will be talking to Albena Asmanova, Associate Professor of Political and Social Thought at the Brussels School of International Studies of the University of Kent. She is currently a visiting fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria. You can find more information on the Institute on our website at iwm.at and more information on the Europe's Futures program at europesfutures.eu. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share this podcast. We appreciate you tuning in.